Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAHU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life, relevant to staff and students, looking at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikhani. And, and we're, we're your, your hosts. hosts. Welcome back to The Academic Citizen. We're really pleased to be relaunching our podcast for 2017, and we hope you'll tune in for all the episodes that we have planned for the months ahead. I'm Mahita Ikhani, and I'll be hosting today's episode. But before I introduce it, I want to extend a very warm welcome to two new members of the Academic Citizen team. Firstly, I'm very pleased to announce that Dr. Nosipo Mkomezulu has joined the team as co-host. Nosipo and I will be hosting alternate episodes, and I'm really thrilled that I get to work with this awesome scholar on this awesome project. And also funny scholar. Seriously, every time I chat with Nosipo, I end up laughing at something hilarious that she said. Secondly, a very warm welcome to our new producer slash researcher, Simba Honde, who is possibly the most important person in our team as he makes everything happen behind the scenes. Okay, let's move on to today's show. Are you an academic who does really complicated research on a subject that you sometimes think that most people out there in the world will never care about or understand? Today's show is for you. Alongside teaching, one of the main things we do as academics is research. But how do we communicate and disseminate our research work in such a way that other people who don't live in the so-called ivory tower can benefit from it or learn about it or understand it or enjoy it? Our guest today to discuss this topic is Natasha Joseph, who is Science and Education Editor at The Conversation, the excellent website that helps to translate academic research into writing that the broader public can engage with. Natasha worked as news editor of City Press for three years before joining the Conversation Africa. She freelanced for a range of publications, including Al Jazeera English, The Atlantic, and The Big Issue. After obtaining her Bachelor of Journalism at Rhodes University in 2003, she worked for the Cape Times as a general reporter before joining the Cape Argus as news editor in 2009. She's also a contributing editor to the Index on Censorship, and she's been a member of the Conversation Africa team Inception. My name is Larata Mushamiani. I'm a master's student in the political studies department at the university. My thoughts on, um, I do have a bit of knowledge in terms of what my the study of area that my lecturer works within or writes within. Um, I was exposed to his um, field through his lectures where we got introduced to the work that he does and um, what he publishes and all of that. So I do have an interest in what they publish and what they put out there. And yeah, um, I do think that um, sometimes researchers tend to write for researchers because um, when you look at the work that they produce, sometimes it's very um, highly technical and academic. Does making it not easily accessible or easy for everyone to read and um, fully understand. So I think that academics need to be a bit more open-minded in terms of the platforms that they'll use to um, share their work and in order for people to be able to read that work because 
um, I feel as though sometimes this work is the work that they write is um, should be limited to journals, and not everybody has access to journals, and there's usually the subscription fee that one has to pay in order to access these journals. So um, that's already a barrier in itself in terms of the ordinary citizen would not be able to obtain that information. So I think academics should start broadening their writing and also broadening the platforms that they will put out their work on so that people can start having access to it and gain the information that they put out. So warm welcome to you for our discussion today about disseminating academic research. So perhaps we can start with perhaps a big question. From your perspective, what responsibilities do you think academics have to make their research findings public and accessible in different ways? Well, I think that the old uh, cliche of ivory towers is where you need to start from. So what is the point of producing research that contributes either to the way that we understand the world or the way that things are being done, say, in medical technology and solar technology, if the only people who are going to understand it are the people you've got conferences with or who can access the journals that you're writing in? And so it becomes this sort of echo chamber, and sometimes your product, especially if you're in of the science world will be commercialized, but people will have very little understanding of how they function, how you got to this point, and I think that even ordinary people have a natural curiosity about how did we reach the point where we have solar panels on roofs, for instance, who developed that technology, uh, where did it come from, who did the thinking, and I think that there's a mistrust of academia um, all over the world, I think this is happening, is that it's seen as a sort of a pursuit for the few. It's seen as something that's producing information that can only be accessed by the few and that that knowledge is not then being fed back into the public domain. So governments are funding a great deal of research. Um, The private sector is funding a great deal of research in some disciplines like engineering, uh, metallurgy, those sorts of things. And then the funding happens, the research is produced, and then what? Um, So I think that more and more academics are realizing that they do need to disseminate that research in a way that ordinary people can understand. Um, And also, apart from anything else, to be a pragmatist, it gives you a public profile. In a world where academia is changing and where academic jobs are no longer sort of a guaranteed 25, 30-year thing, you become an emeritus professor, end of story... Uh, it's probably quite valuable to have your name out in the public sphere as somebody who is a thinker and an inventor and a doer um, to kind of broaden your own horizons. Okay, so we're talking here about ways of disseminating academic research that go beyond just publishing in, in journals or giving talks at conferences. So from your experience in kind of working in this field, what are some of the ways that academic researchers can get their research findings or their contributions to society out there, apart from the kind of classic publishing and speaking at conferences route? I mean, I think what's important to say is that public engagement is never going to replace those cornerstones of academic production. Um, I don't think it's an either-or. And I know that's a bit daunting when you're thinking about, well, I need to produce X many peer-reviewed journal articles and I need to present at conferences and I have my teaching duties and my administrative duties. 
So that's important because I think that a lot of academics, especially older academics, strangely enough, because you would think it would be the younger academics who are sort of scrambling to establish their profile, but a lot of older academics are skeptical about public engagement because they feel that it dilutes the academic project. And I think ideally academics should be able to somehow in their own ways juggle all of that production. So there are a few things people can do. Um, blogs are a really cool example. Um, there's a number of academics um, in South Africa and in Africa more broadly who keep sort of personal blogs. There's quite a lot of really interesting women who are blogging about the experience of being a woman in academia, all the challenges that come with that, being mothers, um, trying to deal with maternity leave, and then I need to take my kids to school and your male colleagues look at you strangely. And that opens the door for people to start to see academics as human. I'm not sure that people in the academy get this, but people are vastly intimidated I think, by academics. When they see PhD, they immediately tense up and think, this person is probably smarter than me. And they probably are in their particular field. Um, but to start to humanize who you are, but also to talk about your research and the world around you, and the world around that research is a really valuable way to do it. Podcasts are a pretty cool way to do it as well. Um, whether that's just you kind of chatting for 15 minutes at a time about new research that's come out or something like the academic citizen where you're interviewing people that's valuable even engaging on platforms like twitter um so when a new report has come out or there's something in the public domain in south africa at the moment around the sasa grants in kenya the doctor's strike has just ended so if you're a researcher in that world to be able to kind of tap into popular thought and, and a vein of discussion and say, well, actually, I bring expertise. That's useful. Um, and then, of course, sites like, unavoidably, I must self-promote, like the conversation. Um, and the reason that we've been so successful is that, A, we give academics the opportunity to kind of present their work in a way that's accessible to ordinary people. Um, and a lot of people view that as dumbing down, which I think is a bit offensive to ordinary people like me. So it's people who are generalists rather than specialists. And I think that's maybe something academics forget, no matter what platform they're on, is that the vast majority of people are not experts in your field, but they're generally quite curious um, and, and would like to know more about a particular thing that's just happened or a report that's just been released or what's going on in the fight against TB or AIDS or malaria, um, how are we dealing with climate change? And our Creative Commons license means that that can be picked up anywhere in the world on any platform. And so suddenly you find yourself reaching corners that you never thought you'd reach. Um, one of the things that's been fascinating for me is to watch how different stories get picked up at different times. So uh, we had an article quite soon after we'd launched, so mid to late 2015, um, by an associate professor of chemistry in Cairo. And it was about the risk of using aluminum foil when you cook. And it did really well immediately. And ever since then, it's stayed on our top 10 most read articles. It just kind of quietly ticks there being read about 50,000 times a month. It's been translated into German, into Arabic. Um, it's obviously appeared in English on a lot of platforms. She's been interviewed. 
Um, and these are people who are sitting in universities who might not have public profiles. So I can't speak for the rest of the continent. I can say in South Africa we have the problem of public intellectuals who, no matter their specialization, are called to comment on everything. And what this is doing is suddenly opening up space for people who are not as self-promoting, who maybe are not as mainstream media savvy, to suddenly become voices where there haven't been voices before. And that's really fantastic to suddenly start bringing out, especially here in South Africa, young black researchers where usually you've seen older white men and women who've been in the field that they're in for far longer. Um, and to start seeing those people being interviewed on radio, on TV, um, and just for them to begin to understand the reach of their work. And I think it's a, it then kind of feeds back into your realization that the work you're doing matters um, and that it is important. So That number is quite stunning. I'm sure many um, academics who are listening would kind of be totally bowled over by the thought that 50,000 people a month were reading their research. So something about that translation of the specialist knowledge into the generalist knowledge that I think many of us might find quite challenging because we've spent so many years kind of trying to develop specific expertise and knowledge. How then do we kind of cross the boundary back into that kind of translation? So I guess what I'm asking is, do you have any advice for researchers out there who are thinking, well, I, you know, I do this very complex research that's taken me years and years to kind of get right and make my contribution. How do I work out what part of that research will be of interest mm -hmm. to a generally curious person out there? So I've been a journalist for crikey, nearly 20 years now. And very early on, somebody taught me to always have your ideal reader in your mind. And mine is my mum. Um, who I hope will never listen to this podcast because I'm about to say she's in her early to mid-60s. Um, she's a white, middle-class Capetonian. She's interested in a lot of stuff, except for politics. She doesn't care much for politics. And whenever I wrote an article back in the days when I was still writing, I would think, would my mom care about this? And I know that sounds ridiculous, but to try and figure out who is it you're trying to talk to. So it's the relative who over a Sunday lunch says, so what exactly is your research about? Or the new person you meet at a bra and you're quite fancy and you'd like to chat up or you'd just like to get to know. What research do you do again? How do you explain your research to them in a way that doesn't alienate them, um, but that makes you feel as though you're kind of intellectual pursuits are not somehow being tamped down you're not what's so crucial for people to understand is that it's not about dumbing down your ideas and your theory it's about simplifying how you explain it so in the education world and I've now been editing education pieces for two years um, I kept coming across this theory um, of a, a theorist called Vygotsky to somebody who's in education research, that's really important to say this is a Vygotskyan approach. To somebody who's an ordinary reader, they don't really care about your theoretical framework. So you can say, I took an approach which was initially um, laid out by this theorist back in the day who said these three very simple things. That's one way of starting to strip away the really highbrow stuff. Um, methodology in, in how you're writing is less important in communicating with ordinary generalist readers than it is with specialists. So your peers need to know exactly how you approach the methodology in this research. For your average reader, 
methodology is interesting if it's something new. Um, so I'm about to start editing a piece about how elephants sleep, which is based on research that's just been done here at the University of the Witwatersrand in Joburg. And what's fascinating about it is that they measured it using Fitbits. Um, so that's pretty cool to say, well, we wanted to figure out how often elephants go to sleep and how long they sleep for and how deeply. So we used this wearable tech. But you don't need to go into the, we captured 36 elephants and we tranquilized them for this amount of time and then we fitted the Fitbits and then and then and then because at that point you start losing people in the detail. So what's been really cool for us is the conversation and what's probably valuable no matter what platform you're writing for is to find somebody who you can bounce your work off who is your average reader. So... Our expertise at the conversation is that we're editors and journalists, so we can find a story in most places. Uh, your average reader's expertise are that they read um, and that they're then able to say, okay, hang on, wait, go back to that bit where you were telling me how you, how, what does it take to fit a Fitbit to an elephant's trunk, right? Because that's going to give you a good indication of what somebody's really interested in. Um, and the big question that you should keep at the forefront when you're working is, so what? Um, and that can sound a little brutal to academics, although I've seen some journal editing and really I think what we do is far gentler. So what? You're talking to somebody who has never thought before that they might be interested in 18th century romantic poetry from Senegal. Why should they care? You know why you care. You know why you got involved in researching it in the first place. And you know that it adds to how we understand African literature, especially Francophone literature. But you need to tell people that rather than assuming their knowledge. So if you can try and find yourself an average reader slash editor, that's a really useful thing to do. Um, and also, I think don't be afraid to put stuff out there into the world and ask for people's feedback. To say, so I'm trying this thing here where I explain my research to you in a simple way on my blog. What kind of questions do you have? Um, because then it also opens up a dialogue, which is what you're looking for, right? Rather than just spitting your research out mm. into the world and hoping people are impressed. Mm. Well, I'm really glad you told us where on the elephant the Fitbit goes, because I was wondering that when you brought up that fascinating story. Um, so there's something about focusing on the findings, right? Um, and kind of bringing those to the surface and trying to make clear with um, potential readers why those findings are interesting and important. So that could be quite a fun exercise, I imagine, for researchers who are at that point of their research and they've got all these things they want to say. So that's, I think, a really useful bit of advice. And I like also the advice about starting your own blog. It doesn't have to be a kind of formal publication mm -hmm. or formal media interview. But this does bring up the question for me about what kind of support academics might need to actually disseminate their, their research broadly because some of us are specialists at like doing chemical processes in labs or in digging up old bones out in the bush or in analyzing lines of poetry that not many people have read. And some of us are not very good at getting on Twitter or starting blogs. So, you know, what kind of support do you think should, in an ideal world, be supplied to academics in order to help them get their research out there? Is it something that they're meant to just take on as their own individual 
labor on top of everything else mm. they need to do? Or should universities be also coming to the party somehow? And if so, how? I mean, the reality is also that not everybody is a public figure. Some academics will spend 40 years in a laboratory literally working with the same family of mice, and they will be happy doing that and not really talking to anybody else ever. And some academics want to be out there in the world. They want to kind of get their opinions out there. So the first thing is it's okay if you're not keen on putting yourself out there into the world. That's cool. If you're an older academic, though, I would suggest that for your PhD students, your master's students even, it's really important to start encouraging them to do that work because I do think that the world is shifting and that more and more that public engagement will be crucial. As to how that will start reading in university metrics, I'm not sure. Um, I do know that some universities in Australia actually now consider your public engagement as part of your promotion metrics. Um, and it certainly doesn't... Uh, it's no higher than peer-reviewed journal publications or conference papers, but it's in there and it's considered. So the first thing is to figure out what kind of academic are you? Are you an academic who wants to be in the public eye and what does that public eye look like? Um, are you a specialist who only wants to talk to others who are already in your world? Let's say you're in radio astronomy, for instance. Do you only want to chat to people who are already looking at the stars? And that's perfectly cool because not everybody who's looking at the stars is doing that in a university setting. Or are you somebody who wants to take that far broader and to talk to people far beyond your world? Universities should be supporting that work. In an ideal world, how should it happen? Look, structurally, it would be amazing if, the, if there were communication departments, not just per faculty, but per department. I mean, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? While we're at it, let's just, you know, fix student funding and also, but let's not get dreamy here. So there should be in-house support. And even if that's one person in a department whose role it is to go around knocking on academics' doors and saying, I know you're incredibly busy, but I see you've just published this paper in this journal. This is how I understand it, and I think it would be really cool to get it out there. Um, our experience at the conversation has been you're either dealing with an individual academic who's really media savvy, um, and they didn't start out that way. So I've had people who've now written for me, say, six or seven times who initially weren't very media savvy, but now they know when a journal article comes out. They've sent me a mail a week in advance saying, this is when it goes live, here's what I've written for you. The other thing is that you might want to develop relationships with individual journalists I think academics might not know this well. You might intuit it by reading the news, but newsrooms are in a state of crisis in large parts of the world. Um, I think East Africa still has pretty healthy um, newsrooms, and in fact, newspaper readership is growing. Uh, here in South Africa, newsrooms are being eviscerated. So 20 years ago, you would have an arts editor who actually probably had deeper knowledge of the arts in South Africa than your average director, playwright, producer. Those people are gone. They've been retrenched. They've left. They've gone into PR. They're just not involved anymore. And so journalists and newsrooms more broadly are really hungry for good copy, and you have the expertise for that. So start reading your websites, newspapers, listen to the radio, figure out who's talking about what, however you get your news. That doesn't matter, that's up to you. And then 
find those people and say, hi, um, you do a lot of coverage of governance issues. I'm a governance expert. And here's a brief thing that I prepared about my recent research. Here are my numbers. Please get hold of me. Um, and it's about building relationships. And it works both ways. Good journalists will um, build the relationship right back. That's a whole other rant. I'll get off my soapbox. But it's about keeping up with them and saying, hey, I saw that really cool article you did today. Um, I've sent the link out to all of my networks, really enjoyed it. And keeping your name top of mind, because what happens is that the same five or seven people keep pitching up on talk shows, talking about the same things over and over again. I can't remember the last time that I heard a media studies professor talking about the state of the media on South African radio, for instance. And there are these expertise sitting in universities. It would be amazing if journalists reached out and grabbed you. They're probably not going to. So if you're interested in something like this, then find your people and reach out and grab them. So there's actually a strong emphasis on media presence and on finding ways um, to get research findings out into the media or kind of critiques into the media. Um, and that, I think, can be quite intimidating for some for some scholars, partly because, you know, as a media studies scholar myself, you know, the media so often get it, get it wrong. You know, so there is that danger, right, of I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to try and share my research findings and then they're going to get, like, mangled in this article that's written by a journalist who, you know, won't even necessarily do the correction afterwards, for example. So I guess there are also some pitfalls that some scholars might be a bit nervous about. So perhaps the more kind of direct control route of starting your own blog or starting your own podcast or just getting onto Twitter might feel more comfortable for some. But I guess both routes are options that are worth considering. So I wonder if we can just shift um, the conversation a little bit to thinking about how scholars working in different disciplines might approach disseminating their findings. Or I think, you know, for especially those scientists who are out there, you know, searching for new vaccines or new cures for different diseases or, you know, digging up particular paleoanthropological artifacts, you know, for them, it might seem quite immediately obvious what the broad interest is. But what about those scholars who are maybe working in slightly more, um, not obscure, but like subtle or really, really specialized areas or who, who might be pursuing, you know, ideas more than policies or innovations or inventions you know often those scholars maybe in the humanities mm -hmm. come to mind so do you have any thoughts for how how especially scholars who find themselves in that position might kind of come up with that selling point that you that you've mentioned so one of the things that we do at the conversation that that I found really helpful also for refining my thinking about what matters and what doesn't uh, we do something called explainers. Um, so something simple, and again, it's in the news at the moment here in South Africa, explainer, what is a social grant? Right? Nice and easy. Mm. Um, I've got a guy writing for me at the moment, uh, writing an explainer about why statistics matter to you and I. Mm. When I see the word statistics, every inch of me goes cold, and I panic because I think I'm back in school where I was being really awful at maths. But he's explaining it through a theory that was developed, I think, in the 1970s or even earlier, and actually how we see that playing out in everyday life. 
So that's one way of approaching it. The other thing is to argue that ideas matter. Um, universities wouldn't exist if ideas didn't matter. There wouldn't be literature departments. There wouldn't be language departments, for instance. Um, and sometimes that can feel really intimidating. So I had a really cool story a little while ago um, about a young woman who got her master's degree in sign language. So uh, she's a linguist, I think, by training. Um, but she had to actually use South African sign language to physically sign her entire master's dissertation. So, okay, hooray, lovely story. Nice to see somebody being able to, in an environment that's often quite hostile towards people living with disabilities, to kind of come through and get a master's degree. But the approach that we took to that was to actually get her supervisors to write about the experience of overseeing this kind of master's degree. And that part of academia that seems so opaque and strange to people outside, it suddenly opened up. So that's one way to do it. Um, the methodology that you're using might be really interesting. You might be sitting in archives that have been closed for 300 years that nobody else has ever accessed. Or you might tie it to a current news event. So some research is timeless. I think it will always be interesting to analyze um, the impact of colonialism on Africa. But some stuff actually is topical because of a moment that's happening in the press. So let's think about um, gender studies. Um, and let's think about uh, a master's thesis that examines um, how rape is discussed in the media, line by line, actually analyzing individual words. I might look at that as an outsider to the academy and think, okay, so what? So you're telling me that these words are used more than others. But there's just been a particularly brutal attack on a woman somewhere that's made headlines. And you're actually able to tell me how the media feeds into our perception of the rapist as a monster, as an animal, as a stranger, as an other, rather than as somebody who lives next door to you in the same house as you, in the same community as you. So it's often about thinking laterally about your research, and that requires a stepping outside yourself that I think is quite hard when you're always subsumed in that world of research. And what might be quite valuable, and it depends how, um, how much you operate in silos at your particular institution, is to go to a colleague in a completely different world. If you're in the humanities, toddle over to engineering and ask somebody there to read what you've written. They give you an insider-outsider perspective, right? Because they understand the discipline of the academy, but they also have no clue about media analysis. Mm. Um, and forming those partnerships can actually be really valuable because people who are inside-outside can give you incredible insight into something that might be obvious to them but not obvious to you. Uh, so whether your ordinary reader is a colleague, colleague in the academy, somebody outside, a combination of those two, putting it up on your blog and asking complete strangers to kind of comment and help you structure stuff, it can be really exciting. And it's a really important discipline. I think what happens for academics, and at this point I must say I hold no more than an honours degree and so I'm far outside the academy, is that you become so 
inured to any discipline but academic writing that actually you lose quite a lot of the joy that goes with communicating your findings. And for some academics I've worked with, it's been as simple as finding the joy in communicating in a way that you know other people are going to catch. Mm. Um, and, and in listening to what you've just said, it's, I think there are some really nice parallels with teaching, in fact. I mean, there are a few research-only posts in, in most universities, but most academics, they do their research, but they also teach. And they have this kind of day-to-day duty of translating all of their so-called you know, expert knowledge into something that a first-year student or a, you know, a student at any level can engage with and think about and care about. So they, maybe it's also about bringing that kind of attitude of how do you translate all of this stuff into the, in the teaching realm mm-hmm. and bringing that not to kind of make one's writing patronizing in any way, but to bring that ethic, if you like, into trying to share what, what's, what's amazing and important about your research. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, many academics will say, well, you know, I do that anyway because I publish all my papers and it's not my fault that no one out there can access the papers that I publish in all of these fantastic journals. Um, And you mentioned a little earlier about how the platform you work on specifically is a Creative Commons platform. So I wonder if we could, like, think a little bit about these questions of access and, you know, who gets to define the boundaries of making academic research accessible. There's something really quite paradoxical about the fact that much of our research is publicly funded. Um, You know, we'll get government funding sometimes or funding from our institutions, which ultimately are public institutions. And then we publish in these journals that are owned by for-profit publishing companies um, who make people pay to access those articles. And if you're not at a university that has a subscription, you're expected to pay like 35 or 40 US dollars to get one article and read it. So what do you think about that paradox and how, what are some of the ways that we might be able to work around it? Is it about, you know, making all journals open access? And if so, how do we do that when there are these really powerful kind of publishing corporations who are actually controlling access in quite um, rigorous ways? I mean, look, one of the... The debates that's fascinated me since I got involved in academic publishing, I guess, of a different kind, is how few academic journals, even those that are specifically about Africa or about the global south, are actually produced and edited on the continent or anywhere in the global south. And that even... So let's say that you have a Danish academic working with a Ghanaian academic the Ghanaian academics' colleagues will have to pay to read that article, whereas the Danish academics' colleagues won't because their university is able to afford a far broader subscription and to give kind of free access to all members of its staff. And so there's a big problem with the inequality of how journals are put together, edited, and then published. And that is a debate that is so far above my pay grade, I cannot even begin to express it. I think it's probably unrealistic to say uh, academic publishing as we know it must fall. But I think that there's a lot of amazing work being done in open educational resources and in open access journals. Um, I mean, there's fascinating work being done at UCT um, in SILT. And of course, I've now gone blank on what that stands for. Um, But Professor Laura Cernovich has written some really interesting articles about kind of the global knowledge map and the inequality that we see there. And she also has done some really great research about open educational 
resources and how much students, um, specifically in South Africa, because it was a, a country um, comparison with a number of countries, will actually pirate academic research because you simply can't afford the textbooks that they're being published in or the monographs and you can't afford access to journals. And so this idea that we're actually shutting out access to the very people who are hungry to learn from that um, is completely baffling to me. But I don't think that model's going to change anytime soon. So perhaps it's also about universities stepping up to the plate and saying, right, we have obligations to our governments, which have a list um, of accredited journals that we need to have our academics published in in order to be subsidized. And it's important that those exist. It's important that there are prestigious journals. Um, I think unavoidably in a capitalist society, it's important that we aim for particular levels of prestige. But it should be equally important that you're publishing that same research in an open access journal. And there must be some kind of way to do that. Um, and maybe that's about changing publication agreements with the prestige journals so that you are also expected to publish in an open access journal. Um, and I don't know if that's you publish a slightly shorter version, you take a different angle on the research, you link back to the prestige journal. So one of the things that we do on the site is we link very specifically and deliberately to the academic research that's being written about. So the people who want to explore more and who can afford to, um, in some cases, unfortunately, research has only been published in closed access journals. We're finding more and more that open access um, is a reality and that more and more academics on the continent um, are publishing in open access journals, which is great. And I guess it becomes about what your priorities are. So do you want to get the subsidies and the prestige that comes with being able to say that 60 of your academics were published in these three incredibly important journals? Or do you want to say that and also our academics were read 40,000 times and cited X number of times. So the numbers that the conversation offers, for instance, are completely skewed. No academic journal will ever be able to do that. Our most read article has been read 1.2 million times. Um, and that's nothing compared to the Australian site, where I think the most read article has been read about 10 million times. I think we've covered quite a lot of ground. Do you have any kind of final thoughts that you think we might need to touch on or that I haven't maybe asked you about with regards to disseminating findings? Is it worth all the extra effort, I guess, that it might take to set up that blog, to write all those extra short pieces for the conversation or a similar site? Hmm. So I'm going to dip my toe into decolonization waters, which is a dangerous thing to do. But a lot of the debate here in South Africa, and we forget, of course, that this debate has been happening on the rest of the continent for 40, 50 years. Um, how do we decolonize knowledge? So not just the curriculum, not just what's taught formally in universities, but what's happened in South Africa is that there's this very limited pool of voices that comments on almost everything. Mm -hmm. And new research is being done by different people. And I'm not just talking about race and gender. I'm talking about people who are new to the academy, who are thinking in different ways, who are uncovering different ways of doing things. Everything from development economics to how you read Shakespeare in an African context 
And getting that information out there is a step towards decolonizing public knowledge. It's, it's a way towards getting people to understand that this idea of African theory and African thought and African knowledge is not some arcane idea that's been pulled out by a bunch of students who don't know what they're talking about. It's happening. This research is happening in universities at the moment that gets us thinking differently about all elements of who we are, where we come from, what we do, and how we progress. And if all we're going to do is write for each other and let the same voices that have dominated for decades and decades keep dominating, then you can change the curriculum as much as you like. You can uh, rename um, centers or units, and all of those are valuable and important, but you're actually not decolonizing society more broadly. And if you believe that that is a valuable thing to do, and of course there are people who don't believe that's a valuable thing to do, and that's a whole other debate, then surely it makes sense that you should be taking your research beyond the boundaries of these ivory towers that frankly do cater for the privileged few and do offer spaces for the privileged few to do their thinking and their research and their output. Surely there's some kind of moral obligation even to take that information further so that the world around you starts reflecting more of the thinking that you and your colleagues and your peers and your students. In PhD students on the continent are doing some of the most exciting research that I've ever seen across disciplines, are thinking differently about everything from how we categorize species to how you teach student teachers. But we're letting the same old voices and the same old theories dictate the kind of public discourse because we're frightened, we're unable, we feel overwhelmed, and we don't want to kind of step outside the, the boundaries of universities. And I think there's incredible potential for social change if researchers are able, even in small ways, to start kind of dipping a toe into the water of, well, hi, world out there around me who are the people who I drive to work with every day or stand in a queue at the supermarket with or stand at home affairs in South Africa rolling my eyes about how slow the service is. These people who are all around me, who are not these sort of strange small beings on another planet. Like The research that's coming out of universities is unbelievably exciting. And our site, stories on our site have been read 25 million times mm. in two years. Mm. And that tells me that people want to know. Mm. That's not just people looking at your headlines and moving on. That's people engaging with the work you're doing. And to me, even as a non-academic, I can't think of anything more exciting. Mm. I think that's a really fantastic note to end on, that we have a moral obligation to share our work, to find ways of making it broadly accessible and kind of in that way to contribute to really changing and making the knowledge economy more inclusive for everyone. So I just had a really interesting conversation with someone from The Conversation. Ooh. <laughs> Her name is Natasha Joseph, and she um, is the science and education editor for the Africa chapter of The Conversation. And we basically spent ages talking about accessibility of research. So academics who publish, where do they publish? How do they disseminate their research? How do they get a broader audience beyond like the six people who are going to download 
your journal article. No, true story. Um, full disclosure, uh, she's a friend of mine and pretty much a rock star. <laughs> and one of the things I've written, I've written something for them. And one of the things that I find really amazing about the conversation is that they are deeply interested in not just keeping the conversation <laughs> amongst <laughs> academics who will then go, oh, this feeds into my research or doesn't. But actually how important it is to disseminate these uh, ideas to a much broader audience who also have some kind of insights and contributions to make. Mm. Um, so I'm really glad that mm. we're going to have Natasha on the show. Yeah, it was a great chat. I mean, one of the things that really stuck with me were some of the numbers. Um, she was telling me how some of the articles written on the conversation by some re researchers had been read like 50,000 times in the last month. And that just blew my mind because the thought of reaching an audience like that uh, who may be interested in reading what I'm writing is was really foreign to me mm. as someone who's only ever really published academic work. What we're really interested in in, mm. in the academic citizen is the question of making not only academic knowledge accessible but making sure that our institutions remain public goods, exactly. that they are actually of value to taxpayers who, whether they come to university or not, are still contributing to the space. That everyone has a stake in thinking about what re research does and what universities do. So, Soup's excited. <laughs> Keep listening to The, the Academic, Academic Citizen. Citizen. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simbarashe Wondem. Thanks to Natasha Josephs for her time, and our students, Lerato Moshlamenyane, Jager Melkel, created our jingles.